Tamaria. Welcome to First Up. It's Rapare. That's Thursday, the 2nd of February. Kornathan Rarare, I hope. Coming up, the great egg shortage of 2023 continues. We'll tell you what you can use as a substitute. Auckland's children can return to school and childcare centres from today, but how many will? Uh, flood victims call for action to clear the city's drains. And he's been accused of being AWOL in his flood-stricken Epsom electorate. We hit the road with ACT leader David Seymour to see what his constituents have been dealing with. I visited probably two or three dozen houses in the last couple of days, and yeah. this is definitely the worst. So basically, Watercare haven't got back to you. We'll, we'll chase them up. Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Nathan Rarere here. Good to have you with us. We begin in the UK today. Strike action going on over there. Teachers across the nation have joined hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands of workers uh, in strike action. Joining me now from London is Henry Riley. Morena, Henry. Nathan, hello. That is a lot of workers to be striking. Why are so many? Why are so many of them striking? Yes, in total, half a million workers out on strike today. As you mentioned, predominantly teachers from the National Education Union. That's the largest education union in the UK at the moment. You can probably hear me out and about. That's because I've just been at one of the demonstrations in central London. And it was absolutely huge. Estimated around 30,000 teachers marching towards Downing Street, which, of course, is where the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak lives. Why were they marching there? Well, they want to get their message across. They're striking today, but they don't want to sit on their hands. They want to make sure the prime minister knows that they feel they deserve, and indeed they very much want, a pay rise. They want a pay rise that matches inflation. They've been offered 5%, and quite frankly, some of them are insulted by that. They say that their pay rise should be much closer to inflation, hanging around the 11% mark. And so they're on strike. Equally, they're not the only... uh, uh, union that are demonstrating today. The UCU, which is our university staff union, they're on strike. You've got the PCS union, which represents various civil servants. They're on strike. And in terms of the train drivers, you've got the RMT union and you've got ASLEF, which is the train drivers union. They're also on strike today. So in total, that brings uh, half a million workers out, not in their jobs today. And the Trade Union Congress, which is sort of our umbrella organisation in the UK, representing trade unions and bringing them together, they have around six million members and they've organised a national day of action today because they want to combat what they say are draconian laws from the government. The government are keen to make sure strikes don't happen again. And what they're demonstrating against today is legislation by the government, which would mean there are so-called minimum safety, minimum service levels, which would essentially, in many instances, prevent people from going out on strike. So it's a bit of a disjointed UK here in London today. Loads of people out on strike. Sounds like it. You mentioned they're marking, uh, marching towards uh, you know, uh, where Rishi Sunak is, the Prime Minister. So he's been there for 100 days as Prime Minister. When you look back at it, how's, how's the first 100 gone from? Yeah, I think they started off better than their ending. I don't think the education unions were marking down there with a cake to mark Rishi Sunak's 100th day, I'll put it that way. He's had, a, he's had a bit of a torrid time. So, I mean, in those 100 days, he's lost two cabinet ministers. So Gavin Williamson, a former cabinet office minister, he resigned from the government because of bullying allegations back in November, which was very early in Rishi Sunak's tenureship. Nadim Zahawi, as we spoke about last week, Nathan, he was sacked by Rishi Sunak, the first sacking of the government. He's also been plagued by strikes, as we've mentioned before. He got into trouble 
over COP27. He said initially he wasn't going to go to the climate change summit in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Then after a bit of pressure, we had our first U-turn from Rishi Sunak and he ended up going. I think what Rishi Sunak would say is that events beyond his control have dominated the first 100 days in charge. You'll recall, of course, he took over from Liz Truss and what many would describe as the sort of car crash economic policy of her so-called mini budget. And he would say that his 100 days have been spent trying to repair the damage rather than to really put a vision as to what Sunakism is. I sense the next 100 days will probably be more important than the 100 that have just happened. Yeah, well, he's done twice as well as her day was, so that's good. Um, horrible yeah. and sad and tragic news in Milton Keynes. Tell us about the four-year-old girl that was killed by a dog. Yeah, quite right. And these sort of dog attack stories are often featured in the media, sadly, because they do seem to be somewhat prevalent. This is a story, as you mentioned, in Milton Keynes, officers attending a house in Broadlands, which is one of the areas in Milton Keynes. It happened on Tuesday evening. And in a back garden, a child was attacked by a dog. Thames Valley Police, who are the local police force representing Milton Keynes, confirmed that a girl had died at the scene. And Whilst it's extremely distressing, I do have to add, Nathan, they described it as humanely destroyed as well, the dog, after the attack. So the dog, obviously no longer with us. The the girl, sadly, has died as well. So it's a real tragic situation here that has unfolded in Milton Keynes. Indeed, that's the word that the Thames Valley Police used. They described it as a tragic incident. And indeed, as you would expect with incidents such as this, Rishi Sunak has weighed in, sending his condolences as well, various neighbours have been interviewed who knew the girl in question. As you can imagine, Nathan, extremely shocked and extremely devastated that such a young life could be taken away in such a historic way. Yeah. Henry, thank you so much for your time, sir. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with Henry Riley out of London. It's 11 past five. Let's go to the United States now, where the city of Memphis is preparing for the funeral of Tyree Nichols, the black motorist who was beaten to death by police officers. The five officers, who are also black, have been sacked and charged with second degree murder. The BBC's Sarah Smith has this report. Large crowds are expected to brave freezing temperatures in Memphis to attend the funeral of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. A eulogy will be delivered by the veteran civil rights campaigner, the Reverend Al Sharpton. What happened to Tyree is a disgrace to this country. There's no other way to describe uh, what has happened in this situation. The service will also feature demands for significant police reform to try to avoid similar tragedies happening in future. The first black US Vice President Kamala Harris will be attending, a sign of just how big an impact this incident has had across America. The killing of Tyree Nichols has shocked the nation, but people in Memphis say it's not surprising. They have frequently witnessed violent attacks, often against black people in their city. The five police officers seen brutally attacking Tyree Nichols in the videos released by the Memphis Police Department are also black. Campaigners say that shows how deeply racism is embedded in police culture, when even black policemen are more likely to assault black victims and think they can get away with it. Those officers have already been sacked and charged with second-degree murder. Since the videos were made public, one other white officer who was involved in the initial traffic stop has been suspended as have two emergency medical staff who appeared to be standing around not offering assistance as Mr Nichols was lying injured in the road. Tyree Nichols' parents say they will not feel justice has been done until everyone involved in his death has been charged and is facing a criminal trial.
They want new laws that would compel the police to intervene if a suspect is being assaulted by fellow officers and to offer assistance to anyone who's been injured as a result. Sarah Smith with that report. Heading towards quarter past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. We go to Europe now, where I'm joined from Germany by our correspondent, Nita Blake-Person. Morena, Nita. Morena, Nathan. How are you? I'm good. Tell me about this. So the Ukraine is going to get the tanks that they wanted and they're asking for. So that's a big one for them on the ground, it's seen as. But, But now call's gone out for more weapons. So I guess, what are they asking for and what do you think the chances are of them getting it? Well, after the tanks were confirmed, all the attention has now turned to air weaponry, basically fighter jets. Ukraine's leaders are now putting all their public lobbying efforts towards the the US-made F-16 fighter jets. Ukraine at the moment has a bunch of old Soviet aeroplanes and says it needs new, modern and capable equipment. But straight off the bat, the US President Joe Biden has said no, that the US will remain open to discussions with Ukraine about these weapon requests, but they will not be sending F-16s. The UK has also said no, and Germany too. They say um, supplying fighter jets to Ukraine would be a step too far. Others, though, over here aren't ruling it out. France, for example, has said it would be open to the idea, and the Netherlands also um, seeming to consider the option. And really, that's what Ukraine is relying on, that will begin as hard no's from many of these major allies will eventually soften, which is exactly what we've seen happen uh, with the tanks. Germany, of course, taking a really long time to agree to send in its Leopard tanks, but finally relenting. And now there are a host of countries which are willing or are you know willing to send tanks, Poland, the Netherlands, Spain, Norway, Finland, all in there. But governments and leaders still really remain pretty cautious about escalating this war and further adding to Russia's aggression. Fair enough too. Already the language and signals that Russia is sending over the the tanks, for example, show why. Uh, Since it's been announced that they'll be going in, a Russian company is now offering 5 million rubles. That's uh, just over 110,000 New Zealand dollars in cash to the first soldiers who capture or destroy um, these US or German tanks being sent to Ukraine. So The Kremlin's gone on to welcome that bounty and it all makes a really sad and and violent state of affairs as we come up to this one-year mark of the invasion. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of violence, let's get to uh, street violence. It's an interesting case here because um, the the National Party here in New Zealand, one of their policies is they would like to raise the retirement age by two years. Um, In France, I see the president proposed that and people went to the streets and and just rioted. So is Emmanuel Macron, is he prepared to, to back down on this one? Well, it would appear not at this stage, and it is a pretty bold political call to make when there were apparently 1.2 million people, that's what the authorities are saying, the the Labour Union say there were up to 2.5 million people marching through the streets, and as you say, some of it um, turned very dramatic, to strike over these proposed pension increases. There were, you know, you may have heard about other protests recently on this, there were some marches last month that were significant, but not quite as big as this. Uh, 
now people are furious at these plans to raise the retirement age. Over there, they're looking from 62 to 64, so still not quite as high as New Zealand. That's because Macron says France's pension system needs to change as the life expectancy is getting higher and the ratio of workers to retirees decreases, a situation many governments around the world are facing. Um, Opponents in France, though, argue that that's unfairly punishing blue-collar workers who have to stay in their jobs longer just because the president refuses to increase taxes on the wealthy. And that issue, this issue, has reared its head in France many times over the years. It's a sensitive topic, as we say it is in many countries, with working later in life affecting people very differently depending on what type of job you're in. But President Macron is showing no signs of backing down over this one, and the Prime Minister also said it's non-negotiable there. On the other side of the coin, protesters aren't likely to give up easily either. Um, and there were back in 2010 when there was last uh, a pension raise, it went from 60 to 62 back then, there were huge demonstrations. So it's possible there will be similar scenes this time around as the government just keeps pushing to get this across the line. Yeah, interesting. Nita, thank you very much for your time. Nita, Blake person with us out of Germany. Well, we spoke about this on the programme yesterday. I didn't think they had a hope and whatevers of doing so, but it has happened. A tiny radioactive capsule which fell off a truck in the Western Australian desert has been found. A huge search was launched after the 6mm by 8mm object was lost somewhere between Perth and the Gudai Dairy Mine 1400 kilometres away. My goodness, the BBC's Phil Mercer has the report. A very hazardous needle has been found in a big haystack in the Australian outback. The radioactive capsule fell off a lorry somewhere on an 870-mile stretch of highway. It had been on its way from a mine near Newman in the northwest, all the way down to Perth on the coast. To put that into context, the search area was longer than the distance by road from John O'Groats in Caithness to Land's End in Cornwall. It was two metres from the side of the road. The vehicle that identified it was travelling at 70 kilometres per hour when the specialist detection equipment picked up radiation emitted by the missing capsule. The search team then used portable detection equipment to locate the capsule. The device is no bigger than a pea, but there were warnings it could emit dangerously high doses of radiation. Experts said prolonged exposure could cause cancer, but the danger appears to be over. It does not appear to have moved. It appears to have fallen off the truck and landed on the side of the road. It is is remote enough that it's not in any um, major community, so it's unlikely that anybody has been exposed to the capsule. Government officials in Western Australia say the recovery of the capsule is an extraordinary result. Hmm. That was Phil Mercer reporting from Australia. My theory is someone tried to nick it in the company and they knew it was going to, so they made it into a big news story and all of a sudden, oh, I found it. Come on, come on. Anyway, that's just my theory. It's 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, flood victims call for action to clear Auckland's drains and it's an important day today at Gobbler's Knob. Just a warning, some puns happening very soon.
A shortage of eggs has the nation scrambling for alternatives and it will be a while before our worries can be laid to rest. I'm not even yoking. When I say that help is on the way, Megan May of Little Bird Organics in Auckland has been brooding on the subject and it turns out there are a few substitutes available so we poached the ideas off her. I spoke to her about them and she started telling me why eggs are such a key ingredient. Well, they just do so much in a recipe. They bind it. They, you know, they provide protein in it, but they also help it rise as well. So they give it that airy kind of light and fluffy feeling. And I think also it's something that we've always used. We always had like good access to, you know, like we use so much butter and flour and eggs and sugar. You know, just once the combination works, we don't really try something new. Yeah, you're right. I've been doing that thing where you're cooking and then you go to the fridge and it's like, we haven't got this. And you have to think on on the fly (laughs) is quite hard. This time, at least, there's a little bit of warning because it's very hard to find them in the shelves there as well. So what natural egg substitutes are there that you could use? Yeah, so there's lots of egg substitutes. A lot of them don't work exactly like an egg. There's quite a famous sort of test that the kitchen did a long time ago. And one of the things that came out on top that was really surprising was actually like soda water. Soda um, water? As, yes. But with egg substitutes, it depends what you're talking about. That was in like a cake-type muffin situation. So there's kind of like, it depends what you're looking at. But things like soda water or even a combination of baking powder and vinegar can work quite well. Generally, you're trying to sub out like a quarter of a cup if you're replacing an egg. But there's also sort of eggs that are like flax eggs, which is just ground flaxseed. And you really want to use golden flax in that for the, for the flavour. Hmm. And then things like psyllium, mashed banana, applesauce, aquafaba, which is the liquid of a can of beans, usually chickpeas. And that works really well as a meringue substitute, like an egg white substitute. And you can actually replace a whole egg with that with about three tablespoons of it. And then there's the commercial replacers, things like Organ or Bob's Red Mills. They do egg replacers. And they've done it for a long time. I mean, a lot of children are actually allergic to eggs. I mean, not a huge percentage, but enough as a percentage for it to be quite a thing. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many recipes out there without eggs as well. But if you're looking for a substitute, there's a whole lot of them. Um, and they're all quite cheap, but it would depend what recipe you're doing as to what you start out. It's, it's interesting. I, I said to pick myself up off the floor there before. I was trying to think of soda water Benedict, and I don't think I'm ordering that uh, no, when I want to go to a no. cafe. No, so that's, that's very much baking. So yeah. when it comes to egg eggs, you're looking at your substitutes are going to be... So for us, we make chickpea tofu out of chickpeas, and then we use that to make an omelette. And also, even in one of my books, I have the recipe for that. You can make a chickpea egg from that. And some of the chickpeas, they don't taste like egg, but they're in that kind of space. And then you can add, you know, the trick is to add a little bit of black salt, which has sulfur in it, has that eggy flavor to it. And then a hint of turmeric just for the color. So, so much of it is about color and smell and all that kind of thing. And you can kind of replicate that. But there isn't anything that's like the perfect like savoury egg substitute for a Benedict, but like for us, we would use a mushroom, although that's yeah. not an egg. Other people would use tofu and things like that. 
So it's, it's interesting, Megan, you, you touched on it before, and I was thinking, uh, friends of mine, they, they had a son, or they, they have a son, I should say, sorry, who is, uh, he was one of the, the egg allergy people, and, and I thought too, but perhaps with, with them, and I know the celiacs, um, you know, with, with gluten and things like that, in a way, through their unfortunate situation, it's, I guess, forced people over the last decade, even, and a little bit more, to try and find these substitutes, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I mean, that's actually, for me, that's my experience. I am celiac, and I'm also allergic to dairy as well. So I've had to always find substitutes. And it's actually kind of great. Like, it's frustrating sometimes, but it's great. You try so many different new things. I mean, people don't, I always think people like change more than they do. People want comfort, especially the last three years have been hard, and people want their familiar comfort too. But, you know, there's so much in, in trying new things. And having other, you know, like we live on Waiheke and we can't always get what we what we want at the shops, especially if everyone's over for the holidays, renting in the shops. Yeah. So I always, we always have to have different alternative things around. You can't guarantee to, to get a recipe or the ingredients for a recipe. So Megan, if people want to uh, perhaps investigate some of these, Little Bird Organics, can we find you online? Yeah, you can find us online. I don't have like a an egg replacer sort of I've written it in things before and talked about it before um, but I don't have a, a page to say that someone can go to but there is a lot of great pages out there that have everything that is very well tested as well and um, that's what I was talking about that kitchen one but that's baking in particular but they can come to us they can always email email through our website if they have any questions and then there's there are some really great pages out there with all of the different ones and as I say they're actually usually pretty cheap and for the most part in baking they work quite well. That's Megan May of Little Bird Organics in Auckland. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It is the day of our life we call the 2nd of February. Let's have a look at uh, some of the famous people born on this day. In 1905, Ayn Rand was born. Um, she was uh, born in Russia. Uh, one of the, I guess, most influential authors for uh, conservatives and libertarians in the USA. I tried Atlas Shrugged, but I think I got about a end of the first chapter and thought, ooh, I'll get to that later. It's not quite later yet. Uh, on this day in 1947, Farrah Fawcett was born. Anyway, she died in 2009. Still with us and... Singing away is uh, Shakira, uh, the singer from Colombia. She was born in 1977. On this day in 1887, a groundhog called Punxsutawney Phil made his first appearance at Gobbler's Knob in Pennsylvania as a rodent meteorologist. This is Groundhog Day. This is what it was. So basically, if the groundhog sees a shadow, expect six more weeks of winter, is what they said. Uh, the tradition derives from the Pennsylvania Dutch. They bought the tradition from, uh, with them uh, from Germany, uh, substituting a groundhog for the German tradition of a badger. And of course, the movie Groundhog Day is how we know it. it made it famous uh, in 1993 with the uh, film by Harold Ramos that starred Bill Murray. And on this day in 1914, the very first Cub Scout pack was formed in Sussex, England. I mean, we used to finish with Cubs do your best, we will do it. Oh, sorry, R. Kayla, we'll do our best. There you go. So, uh, congratulations to everybody that helps the uh, helps out with the Cubs. It's a good thing. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. 
And joining us from the business team, it's Giles Beckford. Wait, I forgot Giles. R. Kayla will do our best. Cubs, do your best. We will do our best. There you are. Didn't you have to do a dib, 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 dab, 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 dob, no, dob, dob, sort of No, didn't we you? didn't dib, dib. I think that's, that didn't make it out to the Antipodes. Well, yeah, I don't well, think it did. Well, Perhaps that was just the just the Mahora uh, Cubs pack. I'm not sure. <laughs> Could have been. What's, uh, yeah. sorry, sorry to get us off track again. Uh, tell us about this, the, the smaller rate rises after softer job numbers. Yeah, what, remember, rate to what? well, yesterday we had the jobs numbers out and uh, there was a, a very small lift in the unemployment rate. Uh, there was pretty modest job growth. In other words, the number of jobs added. It was about 4,000 for the past three months. Uh, and wages, although they were rising at record levels. They were below expectations. And more importantly, all these numbers were generally softer than the Reserve Bank had been predicting. Well, of course, the labour market and what happens to it is one of the key things for the Reserve Bank to take into consideration when it's setting interest rates. We got battered, if you remember, in November by a 75 basis point rise in the cash rate. People are now saying, oh, look at the signs of softening in the labour market. Last week, the inflation numbers were a little bit below what the Reserve Bank had been thinking as well. They might just give us an easy ride, and they'll only raise the cash rate by 50 basis points. Well, 50 basis points is still pretty hefty, uh, and that will happen at the end of the month. What it might mean, though, is that the Reserve Bank in due course, rather than looking at five and a half percent top for raising the cash rate it might think well yeah we don't need to go perhaps much beyond five perhaps 5.25 i mean i know these things all seem you know relatively small um, fry but you know every little bit helps and it also means that the reserve bank may see that in due course it can start cutting rates sooner than many people had been thinking, which was uh, towards the end of 2024. So we just take such crumbs of comfort as we can from these numbers. They show the economy is slowing, which is what the Reserve Bank wants. Let's hope that they don't succeed in engineering their recession, but uh, they'll do so if needs be. Remembering they've only got one job, they're one-eyed, beat up inflation. Get in there and get it, uh, yeah. Giles. Very quickly, this in, investors that aren't uh, that what they don't walk their environmental talk. What's yeah, this? what's 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 the easiest thing in the world to do is to commit yourself to something to say that you support, you believe in climate change, and you want to put your money into companies and assets that are fighting climate change, and you make a pledge. Uh, to cut your own zero, uh, your own uh, carbon emissions, net zero. Well, a survey shows that everybody's been pretty good at saying, yeah, we're going to do that. Yes, we're going to put our money into these green things. Yes, we're going to fight climate change in our own way. And the second survey uh, taken just recently says, well, you know what? Most of you haven't done it. You've got really good intentions, but all you're doing by your own action is just paving the road to climate hell. And so... You know, once again, if you're an investor in these sorts of firms, and you know, we're talking investment funds, uh, KiwiSaver f- providers, those sort of people, if they're not walking the talk, and you know, that's one of the reasons why you've put your money into them, you know, you've got to get on their back and say, Oi, you know, live up to what you've promised, or find somebody else who will do it or is doing it. Yeah. It's that simple. Consumer choice.
Yeah, there's a lot of people now uh, in the uh, in, in Auckland who might be going like, "What? Now tell me, where are you with this with this climate stuff?" Because it's uh, it matters a lot more when it comes through your door, doesn't it? Uh, Giles, thank you very much for your time. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at ten to seven. And sticking with that, a second weather bomb in less than a week brought more rain to already sodden properties yesterday. Thousands of people across Auckland finding their homes flooded for a second time. For context. Met service data shows that the Auckland Airport weather station recorded more this is this, more rain on Friday night between 5 p.m. and 9 p.m. than three average January rainfalls. That's in the space of four hours. 258 millimetres fell during that four-hour period alone. But the common thread among those impacted and displaced by the floods is the state of the city's drains. Reporter Leonard Powell spoke to some of those affected in the suburb of Epsom. Kimberley Road in Epsom is a sorry sight. For the second time in five days, the lower end of the road is completely submerged. Dogs bark as uncollected rubbish floats on top of the smelly water. The power of the wind and flooding has tipped a shipping container onto its side. It gets lifted onto the back of a truck, destined for the dump. Isha and her husband Paul have lived here for 19 years. Isha describes the extent of the flood, which took over the entire bottom story of their section. The water was actually as high as the garage, so everything that was in the garage is just totally and utterly destroyed. Yeah, it's all a bit of a nightmare, really. It's into the house, and we're up steps at the back, so it's into the house about six, eight inches. And the because it's, it's so high, it seeped up through the floorboards and the rest of the house. Carpet's totally destroyed. She tells me the flooding couldn't have come at a worse time. We've had to cope, but my, my husband's actually in the process of having daily radiation at Auckland Hospital for cancer on his head. So we're, we're dealing with that as well. We're just going in shortly. But she's remaining stoic as she points to a house a few doors down at the lowest point in the road. These people's living spaces are totally and utterly six feet underwater. So there's always a, a blessing. I ask Isha if she'd seen any flooding in the area prior to this. Never, ever. Uh, in you know, people who've lived here all this, you know, many, 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 many years have said there's never been flooding like this. Uh, we thought at first it was because the, the, there's a drain in the car park over there and the council, we, we keep telling the council it needs cleared because the leaves fill up the drain. But they, they haven't cleared it recently. But it's more than that, I think, when I see all of this. It's more than just leaves in one drain. A few houses along, I meet John Orchard and his wife Annette. They've lived on Kimberley Road for 38 years. They're busy hauling flood-damaged items from their home and salvaging food from their pantry to take to a friend's place where they've set up camp. Their home was yellow-stickered by the council on Tuesday. And they were good. They were, oh, Lizzie. They were right on the ball, those guys. Yeah, I was quite impressed Lizzie? just the way they went through everything and uh, recorded uh, the condition Lizzie? of the house and uh, what we'd have to do and just warned us what not to do. Yeah, you know, it means we can go in and clear up. It's not habitable, so you can't sleep in it. And it'll take a while to dry out and become hab- habitable. We're, we're going to have to redo the whole in- interior. And yeah, not something we're looking forward to. I asked Annette what help was needed. What we really need are some skips, either communal or we really need one down here because it's too heavy to carry stuff up to the road. So help with skips would be great. Annette says modern building methods are partly to blame for the extent of the flooding. Back in the day when when we did this you had to leave a certain amount of the section free for on-site 
ground soakage and now those are all being replaced by three or six or eight or ten townhouses with the surrounding surface all hard sealed and so on. So all that runoff that used to previously soak into the ground is now going into the stormwater system which hasn't been upgraded to take it. She's not convinced that the flooding was a freak occurrence. Okay, it was a big rain event, but you know we're not helping ourselves by covering all the land with hard services that need to go into the pipework, because the pipework's still 50 or 100 years old and it just can't take it. Like Isha down the road, the orchards say they have no choice but to stay positive. Apart from that, we'll just carry on destroying the kitchen my dad built 38 years ago. You just got to keep smiling and carry on and it'll be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end. It's 20 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Uh, the MP for the area there in Epsom has been accused of being AWOL. However, um, he went along on a ride-up, uh, on a ride-along, sorry, with the First Up. So Act Leader David Seymour, you'll hear that. And also Auckland children can return to school today, uh, but what impacts will floods have on attendance? Papa Toy Toy High School Principal Vaughan, Vaughan Kuyo, uh is with us. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report are here after 6 o'clock for a quick preview of what's happening this morning on the flagship show. It is Kim Hill. Kia ora, Kim, how are you? Kia ora, I'm very well, thank you. And you? I'm good. What's happening on the programme today? Well, we'll be covering the aftermath of the floods, of course, and the road situation, and this dreadful batch that was wiped out by the slip. Oh, yes. Three people injured in that. We'll talk to one of the people on the scene there. Uh, Rains may still be on the way. Back to the Coromandel, of course, and may yet afflict the South Island. But for Auckland, the worst is over, the mop-up is beginning. We'll be talking to the parole board chair and to corrections uh, in the wake of the sentencing of Joseph Bryder for the murder of his neighbour after his release on parole. It's one of those situations where you think somebody must have been able to do something. But neither the parole board nor corrections say anything could have changed the outcome. Uh, And Grant Robertson on the U-turn on fuel tax subsidy. Uh, All that and more coming up, Nathan. Thank you very much, Kim Hill, uh, with you uh, up with Corin Dan after six. Well, and uh, an Auckland block of flats that was swamped by two and a half metres of water on Friday was flooded again yesterday and the residents are at the end of their tether. And an elderly resident remains in the top story of one of those units as she's too ill to be moved whilst tenants wait for help to arrive. Matthew Tunison visited the area yesterday with local MP David Seymour to gauge the level of the damage and the response. Driving through the debris-littered streets of Epsom yesterday, we spot a block of flats on the corner of Manico Road and Epsom Avenue, where the car park is submerged in a foot of water. See the watermarks? That's obviously gone through there, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, which uh-huh. is which is not too bad. I mean, I, it looks like the flats are actually higher than that. But, yeah. Okay. Um, no one's home in any of the flats, so we walk down Epsom Avenue to see who else we can find. When we arrive at the corner of Gillies Ave, we're shocked by what we see. Hi sir, how you going? Oh my oh, goodness. No. No, good? 
There's a good metre of water backed up against the eight-unit building. Piles of the residents' belongings are stacked outside, along with a stranded car. Resident Arena Tanabe explains what's happened, beginning with Friday night's deluge. The water was coming in from every direction, yeah. um, down from the street, right down from the back units. We, yeah. like, we're all low. Um, our drains aren't very um, clean well, so it was you know, clogging up everything. Yeah, yeah and one, like, before you know it, it was just above two metres, almost onto our second it floor. so fast. I mean, that, yeah. that's basically from sort of 6pm to 9pm or even uh, faster? 6 to 7. Yeah, wow. It was yeah. like by 7.40 something, it was flooded up through there because all the waters were coming down to us, yeah. And then um, the response after that, nobody really were able to help because they were so busy in all the other areas. Where did you go to stay? Uh, my friend's house in Mount Eden. Okay. Um, my parents are still upstairs because, yeah, it's just better for them to stay there because my mom's, um, she is very, I guess, ill to kind of, oh, no. you know, move around so yeah. much. So, yeah, the next day we got all the community to help us clean the flood up and then before you know it, happened again today. Irina says she'd messaged Mr Seymour on Instagram a couple of days ago. We need, I guess, some someone to unclog the drains, fix this whole problem that, yep. you know, yep. because nobody's coming in to advocate for us, nobody's coming in to check it out. Yep. Like, our whole first world flooded, so we don't even know the prop, like integrity of the structure. Yep. And also the, like, the back, um, back units as well. So most of us had to, like, move out. Yep. Unless you know, if we had a house to play, yeah. stay in, yeah. yeah, it was really hard to get um, groceries as well because most of our cars are damaged. Yeah. At least five cars here were damaged. Probably, I don't know about the back, but yeah. it was just really bad. I'm sorry if I haven't replied to your Instagram oh, no, message. You did. I, 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 I get a lot. Yeah, and I, no, that's I, all right. Everyone, but. It later transpired that someone from Mr Seymour's office had been in touch with a person from the block of flats. Have you logged a job with water care on that? Uh, has... No. I mean... We've all trying to be in, getting in contact with like everyone that we can and they've all been so busy with all yeah. the other areas that okay. we've been, I guess, the last priority because I guess nobody's aware that we were flooded really badly. Yeah, well this is one of the, I mean I've visited probably two or three dozen houses in the last couple of days and yeah. this is definitely the worst so um, look, we'll, so, so basically Watercare haven't got back to you, we'll, we'll chase them up. Another tenant, Peter, strode through the waist-high water and a pair of fishing waders to talk with us. Saturday we are working whole day, yeah. you know, lots of people coming to help us and uh, we got a sweet pump come here, like working until midnight. The whole cast was submerged. There was, yeah, we, I had to jump down the balcony into the sewer yeah. water. It was disgusting you know, at 10 p.m. Around about uh, 50 people, you know, use the bucket or, you know, yeah, work all day. everything, you know, take the water out, pump the water out, and also all clean. But last night, suddenly, the like this. Got worse again, yeah. You know, so, and also my car here, I only got a third party, you know, so, right. yeah, my oh, furniture shit. or everything, yeah. all gone. As we wrapped up our chat, I asked if they'd had a chance to stop and grab some lunch, which drew a wary laugh from Peter. That's the last thing on his mind. You know, the main problem is we're living in the swimming pool every day from now. <laughs> Irina and Peter are clearly exhausted and very upset. My whole body's cramping, I'm sleep deprived. Yeah, having to take showers every day because of the sewer water, my skin's irritated because I've already have um, eczema, so just horrible, I, yeah. Everyone working until midnight, 
Erina, your poor mother, she shouldn't stay in there. Uh, I mean, it's not very safe for us to get out. I mean, we don't have anywhere else to stay. It's, it's, it's the safest option out there, so. But, you, but she's safe and dry? Yeah, upstairs. Yeah. Like, second floor and the mezzanine floor is fine. It's just the downstairs, um, one room in the garage that was... Um, but it must yeah. stink. Uh, if we open the windows, it doesn't stink on, at the top floor. David Seymour says he'll make the block of flats a priority. David, that was heartbreaking. Yeah, on, on every front, uh, you know, you've got the, the ill mother who is, is stuck upstairs. That guy who's clearly lost a lot financially and is, is pretty lightly insured. Um, and there's, it's just overwhelming. There's so many steps. You know, these guys have got to try and figure out, uh, get, get the polluted water off their driveway. Um, then they've got to clear the drains. Then they've got to clear the debris. And then the cars that are worthless, um, they need those taken away. And then they can start on their house. Um, now, you know, th those steps can seem overwhelming and we're going to try and help them work through at least the first couple today. Mr Seymour rejected accusations some people have been making on Twitter that he's been AWOL these past few days. He says he's visited dozens of affected properties. He also hit back at those saying it was inappropriate for him to have criticised the decision to close schools. Uh, it wasn't necessary for every school uh, to be shut down. It wasn't competent the way that many principals found out at 9pm, uh, got a confirmation from the Ministry of Education having learned that their school might be shut uh, through the media. Uh, and I think it really says something about New Zealand that education is so easily sacrificed. The first thing to be sacrificed and the only thing to be sacrificed. Uh, kids have been told that you know, there's no risk uh, worth taking on behalf of education, even though every other part of the economy continues today. I think that's wrong. Well, it's the only time in the city's history we've had this level of, of flooding and people want kids to stay, stay safe. Surely that's fair enough. And the point we've made is that actually the school leaders, the principals, are perfectly positioned to make that decision. The Ministry of Education announced yesterday that schools can now reopen if they want to. Matthew Chernison with that report. Yes, staying with schools, uh, some Auckland schools can reopen today uh, after the Ministry of Education made that U-turn on their direction to close schools for the week. So the Ministry put a power of direction in place on Monday and they said, look, all schools in Tamaki Makoto must remain closed until February 7th. And then as you just heard, they backtracked on that yesterday, saying that educational institutions can choose to reopen from today if they choose so. So schools that, re uh, that choose to remain closed will not be required to make up two additional days by the end of of the year. Uh, Vaughan Kuyo is, our, uh, Kuyo is uh, the principal of Papatoitoi High School, the head of the Secondary Principals Association of New Zealand, and he joins me now. Vaughan, thank you very much. How confusing was the messaging that, that you got? Yeah, the, the, the message itself, uh, the first iteration that came out uh, had, had a few errors in terms of what they were trying to get across, uh, but that was compounded by the fact that there was a bit of an IT error, which meant that uh, as Mr Samuel said in the report before, uh, some people weren't getting that message till quite late. So certainly I don't believe it was the intent of the Ministry to be either confusing or delayed in that communication, uh, but that's what that's what went down, uh, which led to things being uh, a lot rockier than they needed to be in terms of getting the, the correct message out. Yeah, so, so this information has come out today. Do you Would you have any idea how many secondary schools will, will open in Auckland today? 
Uh, n- no, because they're not required to report to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're only required to be accountable. I was, to I was just community. wondering if you guys have got like a WhatsApp group or something of all the principals. Yeah, no. Oh God, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> no, we do, we do, we do have, um, we do have a Facebook page and all that sort of stuff, but it, but it isn't for that sort of comms. So, um, no, not off the, uh, not anything official, but uh, but in terms of people I have spoken to in my circle, it varies quite a lot. Uh, and so you've got some that are flicking the lights back on today. My school, for example, uh, we've exper- we've got experience through COVID that we need about a 24-hour lead-in time for our community to buy in to, to turn up. So if we uh, if we had to flick the lights back on today, it's likely that the attendance rate wouldn't have been quite so good because they need a little bit more time to mobilise childcare, all those other things that, that life Gives gives you, uh, and then um, so we're opening Friday. We're opening tomorrow for our year nine forty, um, which will just save a day of learning. And, and for me and in, in the community that we serve, every day of learning we can get in the way, uh, get get out of the way before the exams come in, uh, the better. Okay. Uh, and so yeah. It'll vary, and and some schools are Tuesday, of course. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know that. For example, I live in Chatterstu Peninsula, and they put out a thing on the on the Facebook page, going, "Look, all the schools, we're gonna we're gonna stick with the plan and open next Tuesday." I know the Hobsonville Point schools have said that as well, going, "No, we need this. We've got some water damage, what have you." Another thing too, I I guess, as was pointed out, uh, is that you know a lot of people feel that I think they assume the teachers live at school, but they've still got to get (laughs) to to these places, (laughs) right? And and I know there's a lot of schools that have got staff that live in areas. You know, where, where the roads might not that not be that easy to get out, and their parents too. I mean, they're, they're just probably trying to clean out houses as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a couple of staff who've lost all, all of their their transport. Their cars were completely submerged in garages or whatever it was that got flooded for them, like completely submerged. Uh, and so I've lent out a couple of school minivans to them, so they've got a couple. They've got transport and can get things picked up, collected. They've lost laundry, whatever, all the all the uh, dryer and washing equipment. And so they've got to be able to go and get stuff. Uh, and so uh, those staff members who've experienced flooding uh, will cover for them tomorrow and they don't have to come back until next week. It just gives them a little bit more time. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, teachers and principals don't live at school and do have families of their own that they have to, see, they have to look after at times like this. Absolutely. So I guess what a lot of people look at is and go, well, hang on, you're losing valuable days. This might, you know, really ruin uh, a student's ability to get their, you know, qualifications, what have you. The the start of this first week, what is it normally used for in secondary schools? Because I said, I understand you said you've got your, you know, your your year nine porphyry, uh, and that happens quite yeah. a bit at places. So what are they? Is this going to affect them at exam time? Yeah, so the first thing is schools don't have to reopen this week, even even before we had the emergency management uh, plan in place. Uh, so you've got a bit of flexibility to start any time sort of this week up to Tuesday. And so there's a number of schools that were starting on Tuesday anyway, uh, leaving it till just after Waitangi Day, and they planned their days out correctly. Um, just to uh, and so they'll be unaffected and it won't make any difference to them. Um, however, uh, most of us they, we have a couple of days worth of bringing in our, our new year nines if it's a secondary school so that they get the place themselves for a bit, have a bit of an orientation, uh, have some poorhead action, uh, which is always uh, such a good day. Uh, and then you bring in your seniors the next day, confirm courses. So you always get a couple of days worth of administrivia uh, and then you rock into timetable normally you know, pretty quickly, sort of day three. Uh, and so in our case, um, we're just rocking into timetable a couple of days later than we would have planned. So technically we were going to have lost two days worth of school learning. 
I, I know there was a couple of suggestions yesterday going, look, OK, sure, some rain fell in Auckland, but head, headmasters could have made that call yesterday morning. First off, do you have a heads up on what's happening on the weather every day or, or how would it work for you <laughs> if you were going to, to, to do that, as was suggested that you guys could just do? Yeah, we haven't got a direct line to Tafiri Matia, so um, <laughs> it's uh, it, 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 it's okay if we're making a decision about our local community, right? So if there's a localised event, and if you think about uh, my school a couple of years ago, our community experienced a tornado that whipped right through it. Hmm. Uh, now that that didn't affect. Um, Howick. Uh, and so there's no need for them to uh, have any sort of conditions put in place. But it might have uh, needed some things done in Papatoitoi. Uh, and so local decisions are right when it's a local event. Um, but when I understand particularly uh, the Tuesday with regard to the roading network and the pressure that everyone going back to school uh, at the same time would put on that roading network, uh, how, however, um, I think what we learned over COVID is that local decisions and community-based school leadership or, or local leadership decisions tend to work best uh, for each community. Yeah, I think so. Vaughan, thank you very much for your time. Uh, look, that's all for First Up today. You can re-listen to it, you'd love to, on the podcast. Morning Report is next with Kim and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have a wonderful day, a safe day, and we'll be back in your ears up or more.